If you're like me, you read the passage. You think, well, this wasn't the favorite vacation Bible school passage. You know, it just doesn't look great on the flannel board to have Jesus calling a poor woman a dog. And so we tend to not use those kinds of stories. So we're going to have to listen carefully as we go through the text here and see what it is Jesus is saying and what he isn't saying. And as I read through the text, it reminded me a little bit of this lightning storm. Some of you may have seen it. It was about 10 days ago or so. It was 10 or 15 miles away, and it was beautiful. And you could just sit and just watch the lightning, and you didn't have a whole lot of sound. But as, as it came closer, the sound got more intense, and you realized its power. And then as it's passing overhead, then it was a little unnerving. And that's the way I found this passage. At a distance, seemed beautiful that this woman had faith, but then as I tried to put myself in the story, it had a certain power, and at different points it was rather unnerving. So let's uh, pray that the Lord would open our ears to hear and our eyes to see what He wants us to see. Lord, we come here not to hear my words and not even to read uh, words printed in ink on a piece of paper, but we're here to see these words as living words that would leap off this page, penetrate the coldest, most distant, most desperate heart, and to change us, we pray for all eternity. Amen. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's been intensely involved in training the disciples, as you've seen, and he's had all these different encounters, uh, primarily with the Pharisees. And basically, Jesus is saying, I need a time out. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. You just say, I'm doing a good work, but right now, I just need some rest. And I think it's interesting that Jesus, God incarnate, decides that he wants to hide. I can't imagine that actually, but he walks about 20 miles into an area uh, that we would know on the news today, that's Lebanon. So if you've watched the news at all, this is the area in which uh, the Israelis are having the conflict with uh, Hezbollah or the Lebanese army, and Jesus walks into a place called Tyre or an area or a region called Sidon. He's doing this trying to find some rest He's brought his disciples with him. Maybe he's going to show them some things that he just can't in the midst of these crowds that Mark has been talking about. And when you read through the story, you get the idea that the woman sort of barges in like a pushy person and an unwelcome person on a vacation. They're trying to get away, and yet here comes this person that they really hadn't intended to be there, somebody they really weren't interested perhaps in ministering to because they wanted or Jesus wanted a break, and yet she barges in. In Matthew, Matthew says this, Behold! And then he tells the story. So there must be something here that Matthew particularly, and I believe Mark as well, wants us to see. When we see that word behold, it's pay attention. Sit up in your seats. Don't miss this part. This is something that you need to see, disciples. And this is something that we need to see as his disciples today. Something's happening in these short exchanges between this woman who has a daughter who's possessed by some sort of demonic spirit and Jesus. Something very unusual. First of all, let's 
just notice that Matthew and Mark take special note of the uninvited guest. She's obviously a woman. For Jesus, the rabbi, he wouldn't have any close contact with a woman like this. That's unusual. And Matthew says that she's a Canaanite. The Canaanites were the people that were in the, uh, the area of Canaan when the Hebrew people came in with Joshua. And so there's a tremendous amount of tension between the, Is- the Israelites or the Jewish people and the Canaanites. The Canaanites got largely displaced and probably in this area there's a large number of Canaanites. And the Canaanites were people who were uh, idolaters. And quite frequently in their worship service, they would practice prostitution as part of the actual worship event. And so just coming into this area and seeing that there's a lot of Canaanites, you know there's going to be a great deal of tension for these 12 men plus Jesus to walk in to the area. She's a Gentile, according to Mark. That means not that she's Greek, but she's fully Hellenized. That idea that she's been fully absorbed into the culture. And it seems to me both writers are doing their best to purposefully draw this sharp contrast between this woman who in the eyes of these Jewish men, she was as unclean as you could possibly get, and to contrast her to the Pharisees whom they just left, who were worried about washing pots and keeping traditions. Charles Spurgeon says this, Jesus is charmed and carried away by this woman and her faith. Imagine that. Imagine Jesus Christ being charmed. It's like He's creating some space for everyone to see this rare diamond. He's, he's holding her up amongst all the disciples. He's holding her up amongst all the religious people. And he's, he says, let's get back and let's just all be amazed at this woman and her faith. Well, one of the things that makes the woman so charming is she doesn't allow her position or her status from pursuing Jesus. The woman refuses to allow her position as a Canaanite, as someone who's unclean, as somebody who's unworthy from pursuing Christ. Now, we've seen in the last couple of weeks, one of the things that uh, prevents people from following Jesus is their pride. And the Pharisees certainly had a great deal of that. They thought they were keeping the traditions, that they were doing everything that God would want us, want us to do, and therefore God is going to bless us. He kind of owes us for doing what He would want us to do. And so they walk in and they have these encounters with Jesus basically saying, I'm not all that bad. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm not evil. I'm not unclean like this woman would be. And that pride, that feeling that they're earning something, that they have a right to something because of who they are, that pride has created a distance between them and Jesus. But there's another side of pride. And probably everyone doesn't have it here, but a few people do. And it's the kind of pride that could have kept this woman away from Jesus. And that's the pride that says, my sin is too great. I I, I couldn't really encounter Jesus because of all the things that I've done. 
I have so many, so many wounds, so many scars, so many things that I'm, I, I feel unclean about. Not even God could possibly forgive my sin. And that statement is a prideful statement. That saying that God is less than who He really is, and that somehow you yourself, by your unique sin, you're too far away from even the graceful hand of God Himself. Some people pridefully say they're too far gone. And I ask this, have you committed adultery, adultery with a man's wife who himself fought by your side, probably saved your life? And then when you found out that you were going to be the father of his wife's child, you tried to cover it up and when you couldn't cover it up, you had him murdered. Have you ever done that? Well, that was David in the Old Testament. When the church just got started, when it, when it just had its infancy, it was just trying to sort of get its legs up underneath itself, did you come along and round up all the best church leaders and have them put in prison or put to death? Have you done anything like that? That was the Apostle Paul. Did you spend years as a captain on a ship going down to Africa, rounding up about 600 Africans that you called human cargo? You stacked them in a ship, and before you got to England, you probably dropped 120 of them into the water because of death or disease. You got them to England, and then you sold them into slavery for the rest of their life. Have you ever done that? That's John Newton the author of Amazing Grace. You see, you haven't done anything that's too far from the hand of God. And it's prideful to think, and it's lowering of God's glory, that somehow you've done something that He can't reach. Whatever you're saying in your mind right now, but what about this? God can reach through that. There's no distance that He can't come to save you. And so this woman, the charm of this woman, is that she's not going to allow any kind of pride to separate her from coming to Christ. Now whether it's from disability or ability, we can't allow pride to come in between us and Christ. Well, she comes... She's begging Jesus for some kind of response. Matthew 15, verse 23. And I paused when I read it because this is one of the most difficult lines. But Jesus did not answer her a word. She's not going to let pride get in the way. She comes, she's uninvited, she's unclean. She's begging, not even on her own behalf, but on the behalf of her daughter. And if you're like me, this, this just makes you a little uncomfortable. You see, silence, I think, is an enormous problem for many Christians. And that's what she gets. 
initially from Christ is silence. Is he just too tired? Lady, I'm on a vacation. I just don't have anything left. Maybe he sees that she's a Canaanite and he's just kind of apathetic. Or maybe the silence, and this is what I think, is creating some space for her to be seen, for other people to see her, and therefore see Jesus in a different light. That's possible. We're uncomfortable with silence because we're accustomed to action, progress, efficiency. We need results. Silence is equated to wasted time or nothing being accomplished. Silence tests our resolve. You see, in silence, you find out what you're really following. You remember in Exodus chapter 32, Moses had led the people up to Mount Sinai and he goes up to get the law. And he goes up to get the law. And how long has he been gone? Forty days. And somewhere along the way, day 20, day 25, day 30, all the people who'd send all these incredible acts of God say, we don't know what happened to Moses. I mean, we don't know if he's coming back. We're getting silence from God right now. So, Let's make ourselves an idol. Let's begin to follow after something that gives us a little bit more action. Something that maybe we can count on that's going to answer some of our issues right now. And it's possible that the silence that's being created here is helping this woman have a better resolve than she she might have had otherwise. Silence can create some space to find out what you're really following after and lift up the name of Christ. I think there's another reason that we're uncomfortable with silence. And that's because some of us have this idea, and I've had this idea. If you're a real Christian, I mean, if you're kind of the real deal, if you really have faith, To have silence from God is unnatural. It might be immature. It's like an oxymoron. you, You can't have the really faithful people getting silence from God. So there's something wrong if I'm getting silence. And so we get uncomfortable with silence. We begin to think there's something wrong with ourselves or maybe wrong with God. 2 Kings chapter 6, most of you remember this story where Elisha is surrounded by this huge Syrian army and he has a servant and the servant's saying, the Syrian army sort of moved in overnight and the servant wakes up and says, Elisha, what are we going to do? And Elisha wakes up and then this great man of faith, he prays. They're in this little town called Dothan and Elisha prays and he prays to the Lord that the eyes of this servant would be opened. And what happens? The servant is able to see something. 
he's, he's able to see not just the Syrian army, but the army of God just full in the hills because of Elisha's faithful prayer at Dothan. In Genesis, a man named Joseph is dropped into the bottom of a round well at Dothan. He cries out from the well faithfully. Silence. And if you can say his prayer was answered, he was sold as a slave to Egypt. Hebrews 11 is the Hall of Fame, or sometimes called the Hall of Faith. And so, in Hebrews 11, you have all these great faithful people. And here's what it says in Hebrews 11.33, By faith, men conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, stopped mouths of lions. This sounds like the Superman trailer. I mean, this is what every faithful person would be. You just kind of rip open your shirt and you have a big F on your, your chest. I'm one of the faithful and I've quenched these fires. I've, I've put armies to flight. Women have received back their dead. Verse 33, who's raising their hand for wanting that kind of life? Verse 36, some... Some of the same people who have the F printed in on their chest, some of the very same faithful types of people, they were tortured, flogged, imprisoned, stoned, killed by the sword, sawn in two. We're just not used to the faithful people getting that kind of silence. And so in silence, we become nervous about ourselves and about God. Mark chapter 7, the very next passage. Jesus comes to this deaf mute. He takes him off to the side. He does something very unusual. He, he looks up into heaven, probably as, as a piece of sign language to the deaf man to say, I, I'm looking up. The, the answer's coming from heaven. And he puts his hands in the man's ears and he sighs and the man's ears are open. Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 14. Jesus is in a garden. He looks up to heaven. He has a much heavier sigh. And he's not praying for a deaf man. He's praying for the only righteous man himself. And he sighs. He, he wants an answer. Silence. I want you to hear me say, silence can be terribly difficult. I'm not trying to remove the difficulty of it. But I am saying that silence is never silent. Silence, sometimes better than word, screams to a culture who's looking for immediate answers. And you, faithfully walking through silence, persevering, saying, nothing is going to detract me from Jesus Christ. 
tells people about a different kind of Jesus than they typically get. So we need to stop and ask ourselves, can we, can we meet silence? Have we met silence? And can we still faithfully move forward? Or if some of you moved on, you're faithful for a day, a week, a year, but you just weren't getting enough action. Well, the woman isn't driven away. In fact, it says in Matthew that uh, she's kind of after the disciples now. She's getting silence from Jesus, I guess. And so she's coming and saying, well, you guys, you guys must have an in with him. So she starts nagging on the disciples and the disciples are coming to Jesus. And now they're doing the begging. Please get rid of this woman. What a wonderful vacation Christ is on here. He's got the begging woman on one side and the begging disciples on the other. The very thing he's trying to get away from. You ever felt like that on vacation? I thought this was a vacation. It's the same thing. And so the disciples are coming and saying, please get rid of this woman. She's, she's now she's driving us crazy. And so he has a response. And I'm not sure that this is any more comfortable than silence. Let the children be fed first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I mean, it sure sounds like he's calling this woman a dog, does it not? I mean, you kind of read back over it and you want to say it's saying something else. And, you know, I'm okay with him calling the Pharisees whatever he wants to call them. Snakes, hypocrites. I mean, go ahead, go for it, Jesus. But the poor woman with the daughter. Everybody knew that the Jews were often referred to the Gentiles in a derogatory manner as dogs. And here is the Jewish rabbi referring to the Gentile woman as a dog. I read through several commentaries, and most of the commentaries want to soften the blow. It's a proverb. Oh, well, he has a soft and kind voice. You just can't hear the tone in the text. He's not talking about the wild, woolly dogs that you would have referred to in a negative way. He's talking about the little puppies, which is a reference here in the text. He's talking about the cute little dogs at the table. Well, you know, I have a daughter who thinks... We have a cute little dog. And if she referred to me as that cute little dog, I would not take that as a compliment. So what is Jesus doing here? I mean, what do you think He's saying? Here's what I think. I think Jesus is giving her a one-sentence parable in the same way He's been doing to the Pharisees and the disciples. We talked about this last week. In one sentence, He gives this parable. 
And he's speaking in parables because if he just speaks the truth outright, somehow they don't get it. And so he's trying to put it in a story. He's trying to put it in a context that possibly people can see, primarily his disciples. And you remember quite often he gives a parable and the disciples say, well, we didn't get that. And so they kind of go back over to the side and say, it sure sounded good, but we weren't quite sure what you were saying. And so he's giving these parables and he's hoping, he's just waiting for somebody to say, I get it. And this woman gets it. I think the parable here is helping to see. It's, it's, he's waiting to see, although I'm sure he knows it. He's hoping the disciples are going to see. Does, does, does this woman understand that there's a priority? Does this un, under, woman understand that she has a certain position? Does this woman understand the power of the person that she's talking to. There is a certain priority in the Bible, and I would suggest that, that this alone makes quite a, quite a few of us nervous. God, it's clear in the Bible, doesn't have any favorites. He's not showing favoritism. But that doesn't mean He doesn't have a priority. There's a difference between those two things. I can have a priority without showing favoritism. Jesus in Matthew 15:24 clearly states that his priority is to Israel. Matthew 10, when he's sending out his disciples, he clearly states, "Go to Israel, do not go into Samaria, do not go, in, go into the Gentiles." Romans chapter 1:16, most of us know this verse, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel." Why? It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Comma. First for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. Everyone understands that in the Old Testament, the people of God were the Jewish people. And they had a priority. But they weren't the favorites. They had a priority with God in order to spread the Gospel out into the whole world. So does she understand that she's not first? Is it okay if you're not first? Does she understand her position? I really don't care how you soften being called a dog. You get called a dog. Whether I say it with a twinkle in my eye or a tone in my voice, or I'm referring to you as a little puppy or a scavenger, I don't think anyone would take this as a compliment. And she's, Jesus is asking the woman, do you understand your position? On your own, you, you absolutely have no value on your own. Or are you coming saying, I've got a little bit of value, you've got to look at me, you've got to see my little bit of value, and you've got to infuse me with all of your value. See, that's what the Pharisees saw. We're coming, we're not perfect, but see the little perfect part of us, love the little perfect part of us, bless us because of that. And He's trying to help this woman see. He's trying to help all the disciples see. You have to come understanding by yourself you have no value. Like a dog. Do you see that? 
Does she understand that there's a priority? Does she understand her position? And she does. Mark chapter 7, verse 28. I think we should just stop for a moment and marvel at her humility. He tells her this little story, and then she says, Yes, Lord. And I think when she says, yes, Lord, he just begins to create some space. To say, I want everyone to watch this. All eyes on this woman. Disciples, you haven't seen it yet. Here it is. She does what most of us wouldn't do. She doesn't get her back up and say, be called a dog, I'll show you well. And stomp away from the very life that she's after. The woman gets it. She sees the parable. She understands and accepts her priority. I'm not first. I don't need to be first. I'm not looking for a place at this table. I understand that you have come for the Israelites first. That's fine. I'm just looking for a crumb. Can you come to Jesus that way? You have to have the seat at the head of the table. She understands her position. I've been called a dog. Okay, fine. I don't have any standing on my own. I recognize that. I think this is hard for us to understand. I think this makes us uncomfortable. What might make us equally as uncomfortable is this woman seems kind of pushy. She gets the first two, but she also gets the third thing. She gets the idea of the power of the person that she's looking for. She looks at Jesus and says, I understand you're the bread of life. And you have come. And there's enough bread on that table to feed not only the Jewish people, but everybody in the whole world. And I just want one crumb, and I want it right now. This makes us a little nervous that she seems so demanding and so pushy. She seems to be making her appeal, I think, not on the basis of her worth. She's already recognized that she's second and she can live with being called a dog. But she does seem insistent. And I think most of us, including your pastor, don't really have a good category for this kind of prayer. I mean this by this. I think it's so easy for us to become unbalanced. On the one side, our theology lifts up the sovereignty of God. And I'm not trying to bring that down. But but we lift up the sovereignty of God so high that prayer kind of seems irrelevant. I mean, look, God is in complete control. 
He's numbered my days, the hairs of my head, the sparrow that falls from the ground. I completely recognize he's in control of all situations. So I pray, I guess, because he says to, but I'm not real sure why. It doesn't really have any effect. That's unbalanced. Or maybe we're like the Pharisees. We, we, we've maintained our traditions. We've abstained from unclean things. And so we come to Jesus saying, well, we've done enough. God's going to answer our prayers. That's unbalanced. To think that God's going to answer your prayers because of the goodness in you. Doesn't happen that way. But I don't know that we have another category. This woman's creating another category. But I think we tend to come in one of those two ways. God, I'm coming to you and I'm asking for you to do something because of the things I'm doing. Or I'm praying, but you know, I realize you're going to do whatever you want, so I'll just mention a few things and move along. But this woman seems to be forging a third way of prayer. Not based on herself in any way, but completely based on Christ alone. And that's something that you and I are just going to have to wrestle with. Jesus creates the space. He holds up the diamond. He begins to be charmed by this woman like you might be a diamond. Oh, woman. Through the silence, you kept coming. Through humility, you kept coming. No matter what got thrown at you, even if it felt like I was throwing it at you, you kept coming. And now I'm going to hold you up. And I'm going to tell everybody, look at this. This is what I'm looking for. This is the kind of person who's going to change the whole world. And right in the middle of the twelve disciples, eleven of whom founded the church, they get a lesson from this woman. Spurgeon says this, the reason Jesus thinks so much of her faith is because it thinks so much of Him. The reason Jesus thinks so much of her faith is because her faith thinks so much of Him. I'm wondering if your faith thinks so much of Him or more of yourself. Now, this has been the whole point of the whole series. Jesus is, is trying to take the light and He's trying to bend it in on Himself. Everything points to Me. I'm the answer. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. You've got to keep moving towards Me. Even when you get bad news like Jairus, when they come to Him and say, your daughter has died, Leave Jesus alone. Jesus turns to Jairus and says, Keep looking at me. 
I don't care what your situation looks like. You keep your faith and your focus on Me. Not on what you do. And so some of us, like me, have some things to think about. Have I ever come to Christ based on His goodness alone? Or have I come partly on my own goodness? Thinking He's going to be mighty happy with this little segment of my life. And yeah, He'll work on the other parts. Maybe we need to reorient our prayer life. But He's clearly saying, especially, especially to the disciples, the religious people, this is it. You see, it's not about you. It's about me. And the most unlikely candidate, the most unclean person, gets it. We have just a couple of minutes here, and this is what I'd like for us to do. Is to take a moment just to reflect on these things. And I don't do this very often because sometimes it feels manipulative. But I'm going to ask you if you need to or want to come forward. And just pray to the Lord, whatever you may want to pray about. God, I've just been coming on my own goodness the whole time. And today, I've realized it. And I want to come forward just saying, you're good. It may be that you're living in silence. You've prayed and prayed and prayed. You're like this begging woman and not a word. And you just may want to come forward and pray one more time. I'm going to stand up here if it would be helpful for you to come forward and I'll give you a word of encouragement. Great. If you'd just like to come and spend a moment between you and the Lord, great. And you can do that from your seat as well. I don't want you after this sermon to think, well, I went forward. So God's going to be awfully happy about that. That's the opposite of what we're talking about. But sometimes it just helps physically to move forward to say, I've been doing something one way and I want to go a different way. If you'd like for me to pray just a moment of encouragement for you, I will. If you'd like to use the front, great. If you'd sit in your seat, that would be fine as well. And then I'll take the offering in a few minutes. Let's pray together.